Hello, and welcome to Kazigram Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to having honest conversations on the issues most important to life and to our culture. You can find us online at kazingram.com. That's K-A-Z-I-N-G-R-A-M.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kazingram Dialogue podcast. We've got some good news for you. First, we Kazingram Dialogue was featured in Toronto Star. Toronto Star is a Canadian newspaper. Uh, so we were super excited to find that out. So we will link the, uh, the article in the description below. The second is we've been slowly gaining momentum and we've been ranking in uh, the, the, the podcast charts, especially in philosophy. Uh, so we, we, were, we were in the top 100 philosophy podcasts uh, in India, Canada, and Japan. So thank you to all our listeners. Without the without you guys, it wouldn't have been possible. So uh, thank you for your support. If you're a new listener, check out some of our other episodes. We've got some pretty awesome guests. So without further ado, our guest today is Sophie Thomas. Sophie is a personal trainer. She's a graduate student in psychology. She's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, and she's also a model. Uh, in this episode, we talked about um, her philosophy behind um, how she trains her clients, uh, training her training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, especially under Hodger Gracie. Hodger Gracie being one of the greatest Jiu-Jitsu practitioners in the world. Um, you know, we talked about philosophy of language. I really enjoyed this episode, so please welcome Sophie Thomas to the Kazingram Dialogue Podcast. Sophie, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's been a. We've been trying to get you on for. I think we we were going back and forth. <laughs> oh yes. So I'm very Good happy old to have you. <laughs> Good old self-employed diaries. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I'm I'm glad you were finally here. We're able to talk. Me too. Um, yeah, I think I found you. I, I'm trying. I've been thinking, racking my brain as to how I found your Instagram, how I came across it. It was either through Instagram stories and some, you know how they feature stories. And I think you, yours was, you were talking about, I'm, I'm almost certain it was about philosophy. And so I was like, oh, this is very interesting, philosophy. And then I clicked your profile. I was like, oh, that's BJJ as well. Very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Perfect combination. What the hell? <laughs> I know. And so, so you have, you have this tagline on your Instagram Instagram um, profile. It's uh, I help you live and lift well via the power of philosophy and psychology. What what, what is what is that what is that about? Um, thank you for pointing out that tagline. I feel like nobody ever really reads Instagram bios anymore, so <laughs> I feel like you kind of captured the essence of what I try and do in my coaching and my general life approach. Um, well, in terms of how I approach fitness and coaching in general, it's it always stems at least from my end from the brain, yes, but if we separate the brain and mind, as you know also the mind we can look at the neurophysiological um, reactions and navigations that the brain uses in order to understand this crazy world of ours but i think that's nothing if we can't separate that tangible or empirical piece of evidence that we exist the brain versus um through versus the mind and how we actually navigate the world and how we explore ourselves um which is much more of a philosophical topic so in terms of fitness which tends to be a very 
um, biomedical um, lens and biomechanical way of thinking and seeing our human body, which is completely valid. And I would be um, remiss to say that, you know, you shouldn't be having that standpoint if you're training a client or training yourself. You need that empirical sports science to back up your movement and how you're going to get the most effective um, or efficient um, way of training or moving for your goals. Um, however, there tends to be there tends to be a slight blind spot in the industry whereby we completely focus all our energy and attention on this biological aspect and never really on the psychological or mm. all the holistic and more philosophical. And I actually got into fitness initially um, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, and I was suffering from incredibly bad depression. So at the time, I was receiving treatment with therapy um, and obviously medication. But moreover, one of the biggest impetus for change in my life at that point was reading uh, Albert Camus' Mythosisphus. That was my gateway drug um, for, into philosophy, actually. Um, and then I got into the, sto the Stoics, and then I got into um, more of the heavier stuff like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Um, at the time, I didn't understand it as well as I might do now, even though now I'm going to have massive, massive gaps of, of understanding, and that's something I'm excited to explore. But at the time, it was just kind of dipping my toe in and seeing what these thinkers had to say on the human condition. And I took that and carried that with me in my training and how I approached the gym. So I, if I struggled with a, a session one week or if I struggled with understanding why I was feeling low or feeling like I wasn't achieving certain goals, I would reflect and consider what those great thinkers before me would have said in terms of behavior or habits or who we wanted to be. And I felt that this was something I really wanted to take into my coaching and my approach with clients um, because I realized that now, yes, people might want to say they lose weight or gain muscle or look better or feel better or perform better if you're an athlete. And these are all completely valid and those aren't wrong reasons or imaginary reasons. But the thing that underpins those, um, those goals are value-based systems and value-based systems can be explored through the notions of philosophy and psychology and that's what I try and do with coaching my clients I try and get them to understand themselves that in order for them to actually put in a positive change in their lives because I feel like if you're not understanding where you're at now or why you're doing a certain thing or your even your own world views it becomes very hard to implement a change in your life I think it's it was a very good um, it's a very good adage of changing yourself before you try and change the world you know people will look at the external problems are going around them which are incredibly real um and they will potentially put themselves in the place of someone who is passive um and this happens with a lot of my clients sometimes when they're saying um oh i, I had to eat this because sandra from work offered cake to me mm. and there was no way i could say no and i only had to say yes or well you know i was felt really really tired that day after work and i wanted to listen to my body and i hadn't trained all two weeks but this day also i was feeling quite low so i didn't go to the gym and it places someone in the, in, in a position of disempowerment rather than empowerment so to be able to understand why you engage in a certain behavior or habit and what you can do about that, I find incredibly powerful about certain schools of philosophy. And that's what I want to bring onto the table for my clients so they can actually change from within. And as a result, external change becomes much more possible, both for their physique and of course for the people around them because they become a better person. And mm. if you're a better person, you're going to be much, much, a much nicer associate to hang around with. It's much a, there's, there's, there's quite value. There's, there's a lot of value to understanding why you're doing what you're doing. You know, there's, there's a big difference between, for example, 
years ago, I wanted to put on weight years. This, I'm talking like, you know, 10 years ago or something. I wanted, I, I was stuck at like 145 for many years. So I wanted to put on weight, but my intention was always to just to get big. I was like, I want to get big. But then every time I thought about why I wanted to get big, it was, it, was, it was a very superficial reason for getting big. There was no real purpose behind it up until a few years ago when my reasoning was I started jiu-jitsu. Guys were bigger than me. And I realized, okay, I mean, people keep saying strength is not important, strength is not, but clearly when, I, when I'm rolling with someone who's as technical and as good as me and they're stronger, well, I'm getting destroyed. So my reasoning became more so, okay, I want to get big so that I can actually be more competitive. But... At the same time, there was a sense in which, okay, I'm realizing part of the strength aspect plays as I started doing more strength-oriented training. And this is all, this is all my, you know, this is, this is part of your fitness uh, myth, myth destruction that you're going to have to do with what I did in the past. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, when, when I started doing that and I thought, okay, the reason I'm doing this is for X, 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 Y, Z. I became much more efficient and much more effective in keeping the progress and in doing it on days that I felt like, you know, I, I felt, I didn't feel like working out, you know, I was, maybe I was super tired, but that's that, that value driven seems to play a huge, and I've noticed that plays a huge role in your motivation. Mm-mm. And I'm sure with your, with your clients, do you find that in the beginning when you're, you know, when you get, when you're onboarding new clients, is that, is that, is that something difficult for them to first comprehend when you're, when you're bringing in the psychology, this aspect of, I'm, I want to teach you to live well and not mm. only just to live well, lift mm. well. Yeah, ab- oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I'm actually quite cautious with clients initially, unless they come purposefully to me saying, I, I've had a couple of clients saying, I found you on Instagram with the hashtag stoicism or philosophy. And I really <laughs> like your approach. And they've actually said, can we put this psychology, can mm. we put this philosophy into the coaching, which has been really cool. But of course, you're going to get clients who come to you and just say, I just want to lose weight. I don't care about that bit. I don't care about that aspect. Little do they know that that is the fundamental aspect of how they're going to achieve the ends, right? Mm. Um, so with clients like that, I try and um, I'm very sneaky. It's kind of like when you char- feed, feed a child broccoli in order for them to do so that they can eat dessert after and so forth. So they get their greens, vegetables, they coat, they coat them in, and then they, then they can have the sweet stuff, the fun stuff. That's what I try and do with my clients. So they have to have the buy-in of thinking, okay, this is a coach I can potentially trust and she can help me get to the goals that I want. And then I pepper in the good stuff and then they actually get to the goals faster and better without them necessarily realizing that I've actually kind of done some sort of kind of uh, cognitive behavior therapy technique with them or managed to reconcile their emotional regulation states in order for them to make better decisions with food, um, something like that. And I actually find that their journey changes, like you've mentioned. So they might come to me saying, I want to lose weight or I want to get bigger or I want to just look, look sexier. So I get laid basically. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, I'm like, okay, again, totally valid. We yeah. are humans of an evolution, you know, we are evolutionary creatures and, you know, there was going to be that impetus there. There's no, there's no judgment there. Um, but then it changes to maybe a goal about moving better or mm-hmm. there's a, there's, it might be a marathon they want to try or suddenly they 
realized that going to the gym has given them this sense of achievement and a sense of routine and structure they didn't have before. So having something more performance driven is, is key. And I think jujitsu is a great example for this because you learn a lot about yourself on the mat and you learn about a lot about your fitness levels on the mat and what might serve you and what might not serve you. And I completely agree when people, you know, people say, oh, jiu-jitsu is a sport where you're, you know, you're meant to be um, disengaging a much stronger, bigger opponent. It's like, well, yes, if that person doesn't know any jiu-jitsu, but if you're competing um, and you have got someone who's got three times more muscle mass than you and you've got similar, similar levels of skill and tech, technical acquisition, you're going to lose. <laughs> um, you're going to lose because it's just biomechanics and physics and levers, right? It, it, you can't outforce a force that is larger than you <laughs> um so in terms of my own development as, as a jiu-jitsu athlete it's always been at the back of my mind thinking okay i do want to get better at jiu-jitsu but why do i want to get better at jiu-jitsu what does that give me so in terms of how clients um work i almost do kind of a, a technique called why why so so okay so you want to lose weight but why okay so you want to lose weight so you look better for your husband or something well why mm. so you can feel more comfortable in the marriage okay so so you can be a better partner. So we're slowly getting to the root mm. cause that isn't necessarily, mm. okay, of course you wanna lose weight, but that weight loss represents and symbolizes something so much more. And that's great because yes, of course, we will get to the weight loss, but it means we could explore other avenues of exacerbating and enhancing that core value and core goal that we're after. And I think that's really the sweet spot because then we're looking at values, right? We're looking at that woman's um, general value. Okay, she values being a good partner. She values being considerate and kind and strong and confident. Um, so is that goal going to feed into that value? Yes, cool. Well, that means she's going to be more adept at keeping to a routine as opposed to someone who just wants to lose weight because they want to lose weight or they haven't quite found their so-so or haven't figured out their values. So with a client like that, I would be kind of, kind of going back to the drawing board in terms of what do you value out of life what do you like what are your habit hobbies what are your friends like and then we can start to see gaps in their lifestyle overall that transcends just going to the gym and it means we can start to maybe fill those gaps and then they start to figure out okay well clearly i'm, I'm maybe more might be very extroverted i like social gatherings feeling stronger in the gym might emulate that feeling of strength and confidence in a club or in a bar cool we're already at a slightly better starting point than just i kind of want to lose weight because society tells me i should look better mm -hmm. so it's really really telling with a client as to why uh, when you start to probe a little deeper with these conversations and these conversations can be painful because it might be something they haven't admitted to someone who isn't a coach or it might be something that they've been in denial about or that it's been in the back of our minds and articulating it brings up potential insecurities and mm. low points so i find as a coach as well i've had to really deal with that level of vulnerability and being very cautious and careful in how you deal with it you have to be very delicate it's another human being essentially offloading all kinds of uh, shadows and insecurities that they might not necessarily reveal on a daily basis yeah all sorts of insecurities that that it, that, that would be tough especially if you're if you think your initial goal is just to lose weight right and you're like okay i just want to lose weight but then as you start talking coming across revealing certain you know subconscious things that you've harbored as a kid and that start mm. coming out then once i mean the first step to any sort of change is to admit admitting whatever insecurity or fault that you already have or that you're harboring mm. and then from there you can do all sorts of things that the, the um um when you're talking to client for example is it do you take on would you turn away someone, for example, if 
they said, hey, I don't want to do this part, you know, this whole philosophy, psychology part. I just don't want any part of that. I, I just want to go, you know, get down to get lose 20 pounds, look sexy, go, go out to the club, get laid. That's all I want. <laughs> would you turn away? Would you turn away a client based on so that? It's really interesting. I think, I think as a coach and as a, as a, in general, as someone who is kind of like the product of your own business, you tend to attract people that stay with you because mm. they won't really buy into you as a coach if they're not on the same level and wavelength. So I've never had to do that really. There have been a couple of clients in the past where it's not necessarily clicked with them and I've not necessarily clicked with them as, a, as, a, as from coach to client relationship um, terms because they just want to lose weight. So when I try and coach them in other different, different, different areas and saying, this is going to help you lose weight, they don't buy into it because they just see that as a surface area that is separate from all of this. Mm. When actually, as we are aware of, not only in terms of psychology and, beha- and behavioral habits, but looking at it purely from the human condition itself. I mean, we are, if we are going into say, you, I mean, Jungian psychology, uh, philosophy isn't actually philosophy it's quite a diluted term but it's been coined by many psychotherapists and philosoph- philosophically leading and inclined thinkers the union psych- uh, philosophy of this collective need and unconscious and it might not be an empirical concept but i think there is definitely some kind of holistic truth in that mm. there is always an underpinning driving force amidst amidst humans to find meaning to find purpose and i think that that individual might think that their collective unconscious is based around weight loss. And we know that's not true. We know fundamentally everything we do in life isn't because we want to get abs or six pack. Yes, <laughs> the means, you, I mean, I wish the means of the, the means might be, let's say, get a six pack, but yeah. your ends are not that. So yeah. you might be performing those means to get to a certain end. And I, I try and explain means and ends to clients because I think people see means and end and they're like, oh, that's scary philosophy talk. But actually, when you understand, it's kind of like a maths equation, right? You're getting the two plus two equals four. Okay, your four is going to be different to your two. It doesn't mean the twos aren't valid, but everyone's twos might look as a little different, but they still want the four. And I've had not problems in terms of argumentative um, debates or or anything like that, but I've, I've had difficulties in a kind of a stickiness in terms of getting that client to progress, getting that client to really unveil their potential and most importantly help them because that's my job mm. um when they just see um the physical completely separate from the mind and development i mean as we know dualism is not it's not the most valid argument in any case um uh, but they but for them it's just yeah this is one track mind mm-hmm. and they don't have success with me and that's fine they will mm. probably have they were going to have success with a coach who is more orientated around solely fat loss and transformation and that's not an issue that coach is amazing for them I'm not the right coach for them. That's okay. I've said to them in the past, I don't think I'm the right coach for you. I don't think, I think my philosophy, philosophy, pardon the pun, that the approach is not going to be well meshed for you and your goals. And you need to be the best version of yourself that you want. And you'll be wasting money, more money on me. If you go to this person, I often recommend coaches to them um, Mm. that I think are better suited because ultimately as coaches, it's our responsibility to, be able to guide that person to live a happier, healthier life. Mm-hmm. And we have to set our ego aside. I know ego gets used a lot, but we have to set that kind of pride yeah. and human desire to kind of fix things and control things and say, you know what, that's fine. I, I, I'm not the person for this, but this person can get that person to where they want to be. And that's ultimately the most important thing and my job overall. Have you ever recommended a client to do jujitsu? Yeah. Oh, I have actually. Um, um, a couple of, I've got one client right now and he's toying with the idea, okay. um, which is funny. Um, really, really, I always recommend it. I feel like Joe oh, yeah. Rogan, right? 
I feel like, I feel like, you know, when Joe Rogan's just like, oh, if you have any problem in life, just do jujitsu. I feel like I'm that person, which is terrible and people must hate me. But literally, I'm just like, oh, you've got no, you've got, you've got terrible relationship problems and you're a huge Go to jujitsu. <laughs> just go to jujitsu. Oh, you've got no money in your bank account, just go to jujitsu. It's like the bandage. It'll, it'll help you. It'll fix it for you. <laughs> I mean, jujitsu, I mean, there, there's a huge, there's something valuable about jujitsu. I know, look, I, I'm not a, I'm not a lift. I don't lift huge weights and there are, I have friends who are like big they do a lot they're into mm. weightlifting mm. but something that I found with jiu-jitsu is it's it's wholly unique in mm. that this morning for example we have a we just started a six morning a 6 a.m training session in the gi and I hate the gi absolutely despise uh, I, I, I can I just say I also prefer no gi and everyone yes. hates me for saying that I prefer no gi I still do gi because our academy does a lot of gi because it's Roger Gracie's academy. So of course it's going to be like pressure passing, uh, okay. so, but we do no gi as well, but I prefer no gi. It's just, it's so satisfying. It's biomechanically like my wet dream because I'm like, Oh, I'm getting the lock here. And it's so exciting. And it, I think it requires a different knowledge and a different mm. game set, which is not bad. Yep. Gi is not bad, but um, I prefer no gi. I think, so much. I think, man, no, no gi to be completely honest. Uh, for for a while, I heard a lot of people say, "Oh man, no gi. It's it's less technical. You know, it's a lo- lot more sweat, a lot more athletic. You know, if you yeah, if you, if you want to learn more, yeah. If if you want to be more technical in your game and you want to advance, you have to do gi. And I always thought, well, that just that just that sounds a bit off to me because, yeah. I mean, they are fun. They're they're fundamental things that are you know that go across the board for both gi and no gi, but. Once you start putting in all sorts of Keenan Cornelius, warm guard, lapel guard, all these, it's a totally different game now. You know, for example, today, the uh, black belt we were training with, and he's, he doesn't do any of the warm guard stuff, but he, it's very annoying to do anything on him because I, also I don't do gi. But I'm trying to do all these gi stuff, you know, you grabbing can't. the I can't do anything. Stop. Yeah, worm guard's the worst. You're just like, well, just sweep me now. Just. <laughs> um it's it's a really interesting one and i think it is it's completely special and i know this as someone who's done powerlifting i do lifting i've been lifting for years i've done various sports and as a kid i was always the awkward nerd who would go to chess club and drama club and i just read philosophy in corners as you can tell i have loads of friends i was really popular obviously um so i was never athletic so lifting in the gym i think gave me that sense of oh i can be fit and strong Mm -hmm. which was awesome and it gave me the confidence as a result. So it's kind of my means to an end of jiu-jitsu. Um, it gave me a confidence to think, oh, okay, I'm a personal trainer now and I'm, I can lift some bit of tin. I can, I can, I can go to sessions. I'm, I'm fit. I keep active. I'm going to try a martial art again because I tried again? karate. What, what do you mean again? I, I tried karate when I was a kid. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So my, oh, well, oh God. I mean, my karate career was short-lived. short-lived. I mean, it was... <laughs> Again, nerdy kid, didn't have many friends. Did you get kicked in the face? Shy. No, I wasn't. Um, so my sister is, um, well, she was, she doesn't do karate anymore, but she was literally like UK black belt champion. And my other sister was the youngest brown belt in the, in the academy. And my other sister was like, um, I can't remember, she, she got to a, a substantial belt. And so they, everyone how many was sisters like, oh, do you have? Uh, I've got three. <laughs> I thought you were um, going to yeah. and my other sister. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, it keeps going. <laughs> and so I remember the teachers being like, "Oh, it's another Thomas girl. Like she's gonna, she's gonna bring the fire." And suddenly they were like, "I was so because I was about six or seven. I was very young, yeah. um, and I was just so shy, and I wouldn't speak to anyone. I would look down on the ground, and I hated doing the kicks, and I was so mal coordinated. They were like, 
we're going to focus on these sisters. <laughs> got one that's fallen out the net. And so I'd never seen myself as like a martial artist or mm. someone really strong or athletic or cool. Um, but for some, I think because jiu-jitsu has that incredibly uh, erudite element and pre-planning, an almost Machiavellian way of um, like kind of like human chess mm-hmm. approach to uh, making an opponent uncomfortable. I liked that, <laughs> which is very telling about who I am. Um, and I, I, I found that as soon as I, I remember my first session, I was like, what the? was that I love it let me come back and there is something intangible and almost like an energy in jiu-jitsu which you don't get in the gym lifting mm-hmm. which you don't even I mean, because it's weird it's, an, it's technically an individualist sport so you're an opponent but the team and your academy make it much more of a team sport so speaking you have your team members who come with you to competitions and you have that support there and you have the atmosphere and even your opponents like especially as a woman I am going to support other women who get into the sport unconditionally in a sense because of, um, you know, it's, it's not the most common thing for women to be getting into. So it's very empowering to encourage this, um, this mindset and this um, otherwise um, uh, discouraged kind of culture, I think, amidst um, other women in sport in general. So there is a sense of camaraderie, which... I find you don't, I mean, unless you are like a shit talker like Gordon Ryan, who obviously is going to be like, <laughs> you all suck. <laughs> but in, in general, when you go to academy, there is a sense of camaraderie. And that is something you do get in the gym and powerlifting. I don't want to take that away from people. But sometimes you go to the gym, you have your headphones in, you're in your own world, which is awesome and has its uses. But I find the jiu-jitsu has a certain um, element of both. Mm-hmm. You're in your own mind, you're in your own zone, and you're so present. But then afterwards, you can laugh and talk and connect with your friends. So it's, it, it kind of gets that, that special intersect of individual individualism and also collectivism, which is weird, but it mm-hmm. works somehow. Oh, I think you're right about that. There's a, there's a sense in which, obviously, with jiu-jitsu, you, you're working on you, yourself getting better and you need an opponent. Generally, you need an opponent, I should say. Uh, generally, you need another opponent to get better, right? Um, <laughs> But there's that aspect, that's huge aspect. The community aspect is massive. I mean, it's absolutely, I, I know people who have switched gyms because the community was not good. Whereas the teaching was good, but the community was not good. So they switched over to a different gym where the teaching may not be as to the same level, but the community aspects are there. You know, they're talking after you get strangled. You go in, say you come in as a newcomer and everyone blue belt up. They're like, oh. This guy's going to get killed today, you know. <laughs> and then they just go in it. So some people, some people are so. What well, I don't know what the word is. So savage when new newcomers come in, they're like, "Oh, I got to show them that I'm better. I'm going to oh, kill why? them." You're like, "Well, it doesn't really matter." I mean, we had. I'll tell you a funny story. We had a high school student come in. This was before pre-COVID, right? When everyone was mingling and very close to each other. We had a high school student come in, and you know he was. I'm sure he was very athletic. He looked like an athletic kid. Comes in and he does Muay Thai because we have Muay Thai and then he does right. Jiu-Jitsu. We're like, okay, going around. And, you know, at the end, 10 minutes, we're doing like light rolling. So anyways, I get paired up with him. And I was like, hey, man, what's up? Is this your first time? He's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, well, we'll take it easy. So I sit to guard and he's standing. I was like, so now you're just going to do whatever. You just pass my guard, do stuff. And he goes, he goes on a rampage. He's just like moving, just boom, boom, what? boom, boom. And I was like, okay, I guess this guy has never done this before. So I'm just going to try to take it easy. He just keeps going. And there's a point in which, and I'm sure you've experienced it. There's a point in which when you're going with someone and the other person is completely trying to dominate you and trying to prove that they're 
but super athletic trying to you know screw you over something happened to me all right so and i'm not proud of this so going i'm, I'm going as chill as possible and then he just gives he just goes on a rampage i was like oh screw this so then i take his back and i strangled him and he's like oh. he's like let's go again i was like okay and then he just keeps going again i was like ah, man i was like look i want you to keep coming but i don't want to keep strangling you so that you your your ego is completely destroyed so that you don't show up unfortunately he didn't show up again after this class so i feel bad um and <laughs> no but no no but you know what um one of our teachers um mauricio says that um jiu-jitsu is amazing but it is not for everyone and that's the thing jiu-jitsu is incredibly ego clipping it is you have to be prepared to get smashed and just be like i suck i suck but part of the fact you suck is a sign you are on a path to getting better mm. that's what i like about jiu-jitsu it's almost like constantly getting choked i remember because i one of my biggest weaknesses is passing the guard because my posture yeah. just doesn't my posture is terrible um and i know i remember i was going through a phase where is your posture terrible because you're very tall yes I are hate you very standing. tall yeah i'm like 5 11 so i hate standing right to, to pass the guard i hate it i hate it i hate it i hate it the only thing that helps me is now i just i, I this is bad i just basically deadlift the person up <laughs> it's the most ungraceful thing from guard <laughs> from, from how yeah so i basically just grab their grab their gear and i just <laughs> i kind of like, my deadlift and i just and they're like what the hell i'm like listen this is how i'm getting partial guard take it or leave it <laughs> my instructors are like this is not technical, <laughs> but it works. It works. It works in competition too, um, especially because you're just full of adrenaline. Like, oh, I'm gonna lift you, um, and I, my arm would—they would constantly just get my arm because my arm would just be flailing around like a, like a loose noodle, and I would always be triangled. Yeah. And constantly, be like, why, why, why? And I'm like, oh, it's my arm. And the only time, the only reason I learned from that, the only reason I stopped putting my arm out and stopped getting triangled so much was because I made the mistake. I had my ego smashed to bits mm -hmm. and i was like you know what this has to stop if i want to improve and it finally clicked in me i got a bit more muscle memory i got a bit more confidence and it, it, you just stop and i think it's such a good reflection of life that yes you're going to suck at many things and that's okay it doesn't mean you're not going to get better also mm -hmm. it's not a reflection of your inherent worth i think in jiu-jitsu is great because you can tap someone out or they tap you out and you just hug your friends after and you go out for lunch after um it, which is incredibly reflective that you, you know you, you are enough and all of your enoughness if you want to be really brené brown about it um it doesn't affect who you are as a human being um it's part of the, the journey of self-improvement and self-development there are going to be times where it does it does it does get incredibly difficult um and you're gonna have weeks where you feel like you're not progressing and weeks where you feel like you're doing really well and weeks where you're stagnant and all these in-betweenies as well and that's the beauty of it it's i think um one of the most and for me it's been one of the most transformative things mm. i've done for my mindset and my mental health 100 percent. i actually started initially coming out of an abusive relationship because i kind of wanted to feel safe around men again and I wanted to do martial art again um, because I remember feeling good in karate despite sucking and being really shy and awkward. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not as shy and awkward as seven-year-old Sophie, so maybe I can cope with having to talk to people again. Um, and I, I got into it. And I remember looking back, I can literally see how I went from incredibly shy, not sure of herself, kind of was being the background in classes, not make many friends, to now I've got, you know, friends for life from jiu-jitsu mm. and i can joke with instructors and i can have fun in class and i can progress and i can actually be a, in a dominant top position now and not feel 
that voice in the back of my head, which I had before. So I feel like it can, and again, I feel like Joe Rogan being like, you know, it just solves all your problems. And for some people, it's not going to solve all your problems. And it's not something that should be used as a replacement for therapy or medication. However, as a supplement, as a supplement to improving your life, I would always say jujitsu. I think there's, there's something special about it as a martial art. It's, there's something, um, there's something that I, and I've done kickboxing before and Muay Thai and everything like that. And there is a community there. And I think it's a great, it's a great kind of bonus martial arts as well. But there's something about jujitsu. Maybe it's all the oxytocin you get from just hugging people to death. Um, there's something about the community and the cleverness of the sport that for me is irreplaceable. It's super engaging. I mean, that's the thing about jujitsu. It's, I think for me, it was uh, prior to Danaher, to be completely honest, I didn't know anything about John Danaher at all until one of my training partners, I was talking to him and I was like, yeah, we're talking. I was like, yeah, that I'm just finishing my grad school in philosophy. He's like, oh, do you know John Danaher? I was like, I don't know who this guy is, bro. He's like, oh, I, you got to Google him. Just Google John Danner. I Google John Danner. First thing comes up is John Danner, the actual philosopher, who's the, uh, he's a sex, what is he called? Like a AI sex ethics ethicist or something like that. So I was like, oh, that doesn't look like this guy. <laughs> like, probably a different guy. So I, I YouTube him. And then, and then you have this video of Danner. You know, I forget what it was. He was talking about like his philosophy of jujitsu, teaching philosophy. I was like, wow, this is quite fascinating. The way he's the way he approaches jiu-jitsu is very similar to the way he, or at least I'm assuming that he was trained in analytic philosophy, which I was too. So that element of it came out. And I was like, okay, so there must be a way to learn jiu-jitsu where it's, I hate using this term, but I'm going to use it anyway. Systematic. There's a systematic approach. <laughs> I can't ever hear that word again without hearing his voice or like looking at bjjfanatics.com like, systematic guard opening i'm like yes i'll get that video somewhere you have another sale soon i'm assuming yeah yeah so but he had that way of approaching where you know in analytic philosophy when you're writing paper our papers are extremely boring like analytic philosophy papers are like the ah, i hate reading them but i mean anyways but it's just it's but it's very systematic very logical in the way they approach things and so with danner when he did that and so when i was learning jiu-jitsu it was that oh crap you can learn this without necessarily getting destroyed in all the positions just so that you can learn. But you can learn it in a way where you could say, okay, I can eliminate my opponent's position to do X so that they're only limited to doing this. And then I have a counter to this. It's like, wow. And that, 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 that intellectual rigor that comes with that, where you're thinking through, it's, there's something satisfying about it that I, I haven't been able to. I mean, I'm trying to figure that out in Muay Thai. I mean, right. is is I don't know. Is there a way to do it in Muay Thai? It's it's it, it's so. I, I I feel the same way. I feel as though. Um, and yes, there is a lot of. Um, there's the the, the the thing is with jiu-jitsu, you can obviously you have the time to slow down your mind and think about the pins and the wedges and where right. you're going because you're not getting punched in the face. Exactly. You can't do that in Muay Thai. You know, you're going to be, by the time you get close enough to do, to, to maybe like cut the angle, you might get punched in the face. So there's, there's the element of time and speed there. It's a different sport. But also, I, I do agree, there's, there is obviously, there's going to be tacticians and strategists, strategists for the sport. Of course, there always will be. But, um, you know, there's something to be said for listening to John Danaher's instructionals for like an hour. Have you listened to his instructionals? It's, oh, I was there. Let um, me repeat this for the fourth yeah. time. And I'm like, I just want to do a leg lock. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, we're going. And he's like, 
Now, let me be clear. <laughs> let me be clear here. When you're doing it, when you're in the ashigaram, which sounds like a sex position to be it for does. anyone. So, 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 okay. So I got, I have his leg lock. Uh, I forget what it's called, the leg lock edition. So, um, and then I have his back system. So I'm on my flight to do, do my defense, my dissertation defense. I'm on the plane and I'm like, okay. So I'm, I finished my dissertation defense. I'm coming back. I have like three hours on the flight or two and a half hours. I figure what it is. I have my laptop. I'm, like, well, I'm just going to watch a Dan Hare deep, you know, the, the back system. So I'm, I watch, I'm watching it, you know, I'm just watching it. But I realized halfway through that for anyone else on the flight that was behind me and beside me, they would have thought that the whole thing was some sort of like how to get better at doing sex like some sort of literally, sex positions literally and also because they're in like their rash guards and they're just there in like an empty room with two dudes like basically like getting each other's back you know you're like i'm like what the fuck <laughs> and you know like, yeah so that hip control you gotta get that hip control you gotta get your, your right knee behind his buttocks and his left knee on his it's like uh okay <laughs> This is very awkward. It's basically Kama Sutra, but for even more choking. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, the, the one thing, though, you, you're part of Haja Grace. Is it Haja Gracie or Raja Gracie? Haja. I never know. I, I never, it's bad because I speak Portuguese, so I really should say Haja. I know it it's Haja? bad. It's Haja, yeah, it's Haja. Okay. Because obviously you pronounce a because of the, the Brazilian, the Brazilian bit. Haja. So, is it, uh, so Haja Gracie is affiliate. Oh, I don't know if he's affiliated, but he's. He, He's very close with Henzo, right? Yeah. So if we go to New York, we get free entry because we're no. like brother, we're brother academies. Yes, I know. So <laughs> it's cool. Also, I just remembered something cool, which I'm going to do this as a brag. John Danaher, when I tagged him in a story once, yeah, then slid into my DMs. Sorry, John Danaher, if you listen to this, and said, great Instagram page with two hugging emojis. Which Did is he follow you? I have, I have the, no, he follows, like, he only follows the death squad. Oh, so I know, on. I know, yeah. I know. It's so, so, but I will send you this in, this DM because it was the highlight of my jujitsu career. And I was like, oh, and I love how he does the hugging emojis. Like, oh, you got it. like <laughs> this intellectual, like philosophical professor who talks in such strict, stringent terms, and it's like now this is becoming exceedingly difficult for your opponent. And he's just like <laughs> immense <laughs> pressure. As yeah. you do this lock, you'll feel you'll be applying immense pressure. It's like, yeah, oh, it. okay. I mean, I, ha- I have ended up using some of his terminologies. Same. <laughs> if you watch the Gordon Ryan instructionals, it's hilarious because he just, I'm like, you had he speaks like John. He's like, okay, okay, okay. It becomes exceedingly difficult. I'm like, you've spent too much time with John <laughs> Did you, um, with Gordon, for example, there's something about that. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the way John teaches that he's been able to produce. I mean, it probably is the fact that the way he teaches that his students are doing performing so well. But it's there's something about Gordon Ryan specifically, where all of them have the same teacher. Like John, John. I mean, this is this is heretical of me to say, but you know, John is like the Jesus, and his dinner that's what are the disciples, and uh, Gordon is Gordon would be similar to Saint Paul as opposed mm-hmm. to as opposed to Peter. Peter would be like Eddie Cumming, who's no longer in the squad. <laughs> but my point being, Gordon has somehow exceeded, I mean, every single person in the sport. And I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say, I was talking to a friend of mine, I was like, look, you know, who would you, who do you think would win if Gordon and Marcelo 
you know, no, no diss to Marcelo. I love Marcelo. Who would, who would actually win if they did jujitsu? And unanimously, every, you know, the group was like, oh, yeah, Gordon, obviously, easily. So, they, so I don't know if you thought about this, but do you think it's, it's, there's something about Gordon specifically in the way he's learning what John has taught? Or is it just John's teaching and Gordon's been under it longer? Do you have, do you have any sort of idea? I think it's a really good question, actually, because it's true. He is kind of the standout athlete. And also, what's terrifying is that he's so young. He's so no, young. He's 26, right? He's like 25, 26. Oh, my goodness. I can't remember. I know. It's ridiculous. And so imagine him in 10 years. It's, it's, when he's, he's not even really done much ADCC. He's not really done loads of competitions. He's only started to have, like, his breakout now. Yeah. Like, it's insane. He's, he's borderline unstoppable, which is terrifying. Um, I think... Being under the tutelage of John for that long, I think is going to have some impact, but also partially, I mean, if we go back into the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of, the, the biology of temperament, and I'm not mm. suggesting that, you know, <laughs> um, Gordon Ryan is, is a biological champion per se, but it might be that he has <laughs> been destined, no, he would contest that it was hard work, which, you yeah. know, I would agree with, um, of course. But there is, there might be a case where, literally the neurons in his brain or the process of his learning development and his developmental process is much more resonating with the way John teaches, which I can kind of see um, mm. the way he performs, the way, the way he acts and the way, the way he um, talks through things and the way he converses. It's, it's similar. It's not dissimilar to, um, to John's style. I mean, I'm talking about not like some of his really hot takes or, <laughs> Awful opinions. Or, His uh, non PC you know, Instagram stories where he gets bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm like, okay, cool. You, it's, it's, it's good. You're getting, you're getting your attention, which is going to get you money. So I, I see, I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing. But in general, when you watch him in an interview, I can kind of see the way his brain interprets a sentence, the way his brain interprets a situation. <clears throat> it is not dissimilar to how I imagine Danaher using that logical. Um, somewhat analytic viewpoint. Obviously, it's diluted. It's not. It's not on the level of an analytical philosopher. But I can see remnants of that, yeah. which might lead me to conclude, or assume, not even conclude, might lead me to reason that there might potentially be, you know, by chance. Of course, there's a genetic or at least disposition to have a hereditary, hereditary attachment to the way he is learning and ways processing information. Hmm. So it could be that his temperament. Com, uh, co combined with John's might have a be even better coach a coach teacher relationship which then therefore gets him better results in um, applying the techniques and applying the moves which just makes him more um, more of an able not able because they're all able but more of a, an able champion I suppose yeah. um, so I think it's a very interesting one it's almost that like chicken and the egg which came first mm. because there are there's always going to be genetic components I think in athletics we can't deny that and I, I don't Nicky Rod Nicky Rod <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nicky <Ricky> Rod. <laughs> Have you? I, sometimes I just think the way he moves. I'm like, I can't believe you're a heavyweight. I mean, he's what two, two, two forty pounds, and he moves he, like he's like 170, maybe. The most terrifying cartwheel in existence, just a monster <laughs> coming at you. Yeah, the, I mean, <laughs> with you because you, you train. Is it that you train under Hodger? Hodger? Is it? Is it a different? Are you in London? That's that's Hodger's main academy, right? Hodger's, it's his only academy. Oh, it's, it's his only, only academy. The only academy is in oh, London. I didn't know that. I thought the um, oh, Raspberry so have, Ape guy. Ah, uh, so you have like Carlos Gracie and stuff like that, okay. and you have affiliates. So we have affiliates with Mauricio and stuff like that, and we do have affiliates. But Hodger Gracie Academy, there's only one, and it's in London. 
Um, we have we have and so we have teachers who they often sometimes they go to New York and stuff like that and they have been they've been often I mean I know one of my instructors Nina who's fucking badass and she's awesome she's a black belt she's got she's been to New York and has um, studied and trained with them so she okay. so a lot of her techniques we get basically like Danaher coming through which is awesome um, and um, it's very a, there is a Danaher influence I think in the academy because of that link with Enzo mm. so it's um, we don't miss out on it per se, which is useful. So, <laughs> this is this is someone. But you said you speak Portuguese. Why do you speak Portuguese? What, what, when do I speak Portuguese? Why? Why? Oh well, I did. I did languages for my degree, oh, which is interesting because okay. I'm super interested in interested in linguistics in terms of the um, philosophy of language and also the um, psychology, the the, the neuropsychological um, components of it. I mean, we studied things like Pinker and uh, Chomsky, mm. and obviously. Chomsky's stance is problematic, I think, because I don't think, I, I think we can see that children clearly carry some understanding of the world environment and, the, and, the, and how to navigate certain sayings and grammatical, grammatical pickups that aren't inherently a biological strand. I think Pinker and Chomsky are almost too uh, materialist and reductionist in their, in their view. Um, so we, we, we studied a lot of linguistics there and I was really interested and I... I'm a language geek. I like playing around with words. Um, I like, I enjoy the process of it because it's almost like a maths equation or a logic problem in some mm. sense because you have to get the syntax and structure of a sentence right. And I really enjoy that. I'm, I'm a massive word nerd. So I did um, languages because I knew I was going to be a personal trainer and to coach people, but I also wanted something that would be practical in terms of business because it means I have I can have clients around the world potentially um it means I can um communicate of course when I travel on a more leisurely note and the the, the skills I also picked up from the degree weren't solely in languages we'd be writing essays we'd be looking at culture history literature and writing about different thinkers and different ways of approaching the world and um approaching problems societally speaking which was fascinating mm. so um i did spanish and portuguese so i can speak spanish and i can speak portuguese how similar is spanish to portuguese so it's such a good question because i remember my first lecture because i hadn't studied portuguese prior it was a completely new language going in <clears throat> And I was thinking, because I'd, I'd uh, spoken Spanish and, or studied Spanish in school, so I was, knew I wanted to carry on with uni. And did I you do, wanted to... You, you're in the UK, so you did A-levels and GCSE. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so I, okay. did Spanish and, I did Spanish and French A-level with, with English literature. Oh. And I knew I wanted... I know, I was, I was a very humanities Wow. Guy, which is... I know, I've got... I failed my English lit in A-levels. Did you? Yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, it's not, I mean, literally, I remember, what was it? I was writing about like Othello and it was, it was like the stage directions imply that, and the use of this word implies. So I don't think I use a lot of brain power in this essay. It was very metaphorical. <laughs> so I don't think that has any bearing, clearly not, <laughs> as you are flourishing in philosophy, a much more rigorous subject <laughs> than in your intellectual capacity. So I would not worry about that. <laughs> uh, I think I, at the fact time I did well in English is more worrying, actually, <laughs> if anything. Um, and I did Spanish and French at A-level. And I knew I wanted to learn a new, lang a new language. So I did. I picked up Portuguese because I wanted to learn more about the historical and, and mm. um the the the, uh, the links of um, ontology and etymology in the languages because they're so similar, right? And there's loads because in Portuguese, modern day Portuguese, ends up basically being medieval Spanish when you look at it. Really? 
yeah, it's super interesting. Super mm. interesting. It's basically medieval Spanish. Um, when you look at look at um, how the language and literature formed, and the different kind of combinations of cultures through conquests and the um, historical conquests of the Moors, for instance, super fascinating. Um, Did they? So I, are you? So are you saying that medieval Spanish sounded as ugly as Portuguese? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it was even worse because you had lots of F's in instead of S's, so it sounded like someone was really taking their F's for a walk, like which was great. <laughs> it was great. But you know what? It's funny because Brazilian Portuguese yeah. sounds much more like Spanish. It's kind of a mixture between Portuguese and Spanish, obviously, because okay. of the proximity of the country. So it's more open. It's less nasal. Like, well, now, now, that's more Portuguese, Portuguese. But European Portuguese, I think, is harder to learn. I think because it's more... I don't want to say pure, it makes me sound like a linguistic racist, but it's more um, this undistilled by um, yeah, travel yeah. and uh, history, in a sense, because that's where Portuguese as a language developed in, in Castile, and then it kind of branched off into the separation between Castile and Leon and Spain and Portugal. And so it became, uh, it became a language of its own, so to speak. Um, and Brazilian Portuguese came to be due to, you know, the slave trade, essentially. <laughs> so um, to learn European Portuguese, weirdly enough, makes it easier to learn Brazilian because Brazilian has a lot more flexibility in the grammatical rules. European Portuguese doesn't. So I focused primarily on European Portuguese and it's heaven when I listen to Brazilian because I'm like, oh God, I'd have to worry about all of those syntax syntactical irregularities. And so I picked up the language. I did the language at uni um, for my interest in linguistics for practicality and because the, the course itself offered like a whole host of skills to learn and things I enjoyed like I, I love believe it or not I'm <laughs> I, I am a massive nerd and so I love writing essays and I love getting into the depths of different worlds and different thinkers and toying with different problems and ideas and reading wonderful books that I had no idea existed it was mm. really cool um and so I must say my Portuguese has gone completely downhill since doing jiu-jitsu because all I hear is like slang and swearing. Boja. And think, That's the only yeah, Portuguese boja. I know. Boja. Boja. Like, pojada? Pojada. Yeah, everyday pojada. Yeah. Everyday pojada. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, pojada. I have a cap. That's a, I want a cap that says everyday pojada. And when yeah. I have family members, oh, when I'm wearing it for yeah. like family reunions, they're like, oh, IJ, what does everyday pojada mean? Pojada. Well, it just means go super hard in whatever yeah, you do. Basically yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. You well, if you go to Henzo's, you can get um, you can get like hoodies that say "Fodasi," um, which what basically "Fodasi," uh, which is like um, basically it it "Fodasi" means like "fuck," kind of go fuck what? yourself. Kind of, yeah. Wait, is this yeah, the shirt it, that Henzo always wears? Yeah, it, it means like it's a swear word, basically. But no. it means like yeah, yeah, seriously. No, but of course, if you're not Portuguese, why would you know it? Um, no. It's so funny. But like, I remember. Um, my friend was asking a friend being like, if you go to Renzo's, can you please get me one of those podas? <laughs> which is brilliant. I thought, um, I thought it meant for the city. Like, no, no, no. Um, it's, it's funny. It's funny, but it's, um, it's quite because it, it's, it's swearing in those languages doesn't necessarily mean like fuck you or fuck them. Swearing it because it's, they're quite colorful languages can often mean like an exclamation of toughness or an exclamation oh. of joy or something like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, so be wary if you get one of those. But I mean, again, it's a very Henza thing to do. So <laughs> it's not uh, it's not unsurprising. But I, I mean, I love I love the languages. I think they're brilliant. And I found that uh, going on to your first question about differences between them, I remember going into my first class and I was like, oh, I've learned Spanish. So mm. there are some 
when you read the languages, there are certainly some um, uh, epistemolo epistemological similarities, and there's, there's lots of friendly, similar, similar sounding words. And I remember when my professor opened her mouth, she was like, Hola, estudiantes. And I was like, what? And I remember being like, this sounds Russian. And it took me so long, so long to get my ear adjusted to the Portuguese accent. Because in, in Spanish, it's much more open and fluid. Mm. But Portuguese, it's just, okay, so can you repeat the thing about the thing again? Because I didn't get the thing. Like, it's super, it's super mushed into one. Which is both has both its advantages and disadvantages. Because it does mean that um, if you say something wrong... They might not hear you. <laughs> so it goes two ways because it's like. I remember when I was in a cab in Lisbon, and I, I was saying to the guy like, oh, "I live here. Oh, I'm studying, living here for a few months, and um, I'm studying the language." And he said, "Well, he said to be fair, most Portuguese people get Portuguese wrong. So good luck." I was like, "Thank you. Gonna go try and do my degree now. Thanks for the encouragement." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, is it, is the Portuguese when a Brazilian speaks? Portuguese or when they speak Brazilian Portuguese if that's the if that's the right terminology if they go to Portugal and they go to Lisbon or some <clears throat> would they be able to transition super easily or would it be like Parisian French when they come over to Quebec here Quebec right. and, and they're like what kind of crap action <laughs> are you guys talking here it's more what's well, funny when I speak Portuguese in the academy I get Oh, you speak Portuguese in the academy? Sometimes, sometimes with my friends. If I'm what? How fluent are you? Like, I did a degree in it. I, I hope I, I didn't okay. go to four years. Pe so people, I'm like, people can do degrees in languages and not know how to speak languages. <laughs> I'm saying I'm pretty fluent. I'm rustier in Portuguese because I put all my... Because I, I love Spanish and I have a yeah. bias to Spanish. I'm more confident in it because I spoke it more. And also, again being surrounded by swearing Brazilian black belts has not helped my Portuguese. I'm just going to put that out there, but I, I can speak it definitely in a conversation and we can chat and, and like have a flow. So, you know, if I go to the country and travel, I'm absolutely fine. Like absolutely oh, fine. Wow. I listen to the radio. I read news. Like, it's, I'm, I'm good. Um, and they always like, God, Sophie sounds so like Lisbon. I'm like, I know I'm sorry. Cause, they, Cause it's so nasal. So they, yeah. I get mocked. I get mocked for trying to speak European Portuguese. And they're like, can't you just sound more Brazilian? I'm like, for God's sake. So actually, because I'm so used to being in that state, because I, I learned that form of Portuguese uh, th that way. For me, I'm like, right, I need to not sound like I'm holding my nose the whole time. Mm. I need to actually open my mouth a bit more. Mm. Um, so it's, it's interesting. They can understand it, but they're always like, God, like it's, it's nasal, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, it is. At what point <laughs> does it, at what point would I say Portuguese from Portugal and Brazilian Portuguese, at what point would there be a distinction where it becomes two separate languages? Right. You know, what, yeah. what, is the, what is the point in which, what's the demarcation of when something's considered two separate languages? It's a really good question, actually. I would say it's not, it, it's kind of like a really good comparison with your, the Quebec French and the Parisian French. It's not that it's, it's not a, a, a wholly different language, right? It's more of like a Venn diagram. If mm. you had kind of like, uh, generic French um, or ge or more generalized French it would probably yeah. be in the middle where it's neither it's it's not quite um, it's not quite just purely one language it borrows from one another so for an example when you look at the words used in European Portuguese 
again, we're going back to etymology of medieval Spanish here, borrows much more from there, whereas Brazilian Portuguese, actually they've developed these words based on culture, which again, is why I think Chomsky's not necessarily, I don't think, I think Chomsky's wrong here. I think you can develop um, language externally as well as from your biological impetus, of course. In Brazil, they've developed words and letters and arrangements of things based on being with their Spanish country neighbours, for instance. So, mm-hmm. good example in Port in Europe, European Portuguese. If you say "uma rapariga," means girl, right? Now that whole thing to, means girl. Rapariga is girl. Rapariga, rapariga is um European Portuguese for girl, right? Girl, lady, whatever. Like "suma rapariga," I'm a girl. I'm a lady. How how I identify? I'm a woman. <laughs> Now, if you go to Brazil, mm-hmm. based Pohada on... Sumahiga. <laughs> Pardon me? No, it's a... It's a Pohada, Pohada, yeah, yeah. Pohada Sumahiga. Same. Hard work, girl. Well, those two do go together sometimes, Phil. Um, if you go to Brazil, I think, I think um, on, on an etymological reason, I think it's based from the slave trade and when women used to come to Portugal, right, and basically sell themselves. Okay. Um, and back in those days when there was lots of trading between... Um, Rapariga means prostitute in Brazil. So it doesn't mean girl. Yeah, menina means woman or lady or girl in Brazil. Menina. What about in um, Portuguese? Which Portuguese. is interesting because, it, uh, pardon me? What about Portuguese? What about what does menina mean in Portuguese, Portugal? It's interchangeable. Menina you can use for girl and because they understand it. Um, I think it's kind of used for like a diminutive, kind of like pretty or um, like, you know, kind, kind of, of like lady. darling kind of thing. But in Brazil, menina is like woman, she, like little girl. Or it's also like in, in Spanish when you say, hola chica, it can be like, hey girl, hey friend, like hey friend, can be used as that sort of um, uh, interrogative as well. So it's really interesting to see the differences. So and also in Brazilian Portuguese, a lot of mix, mixing with Spanish here when it comes to syntax of grammar and how you use reflexive pronouns. Mm-hmm. So the reflexive pronouns get placed at different parts of the sentence the same way Spanish does. So it's cool to see that mirroring. Whereas in European Portuguese, again, we have that massive influence from medieval Spanish um, and how the language developed over time. And they've, re- they've kept and maintained. Interestingly enough, Spanish hasn't kept this. Castilian, modern Castilian Spanish hasn't, kept, uh, hasn't maintained this. Um, They've, they've kept the, the notion of keeping the reflexive pronoun with a hyphen at the end of a word or a verb, unless you have a negative, which, in which case you move it, which is also a Spanish Romance language thing. This is, I know this is, this is very specific, but you can tell that there's been more, it's more mutable in Brazilian Portuguese, it's changeable, it's fluid, it's almost a fluidity. Interestingly enough, you can see that in the history of Brazil, how it's been an incredibly fluid country mm. and moved in its history and borrowed and taken because unfortunately it was a land where it wasn't necessarily coming into its own of its own accord it it became because people wanted it to become so it, it had it only had the chance to become brazil based on i don't mean that in a derogatory to brazil i i always want to go there it's it looks like an incredible rich um beautiful country uh, i mean this in a good way it's really adapted and thought right well we're just going to take it from here we're going to take this from here and we're going to become brazil mm-hmm. so it became not of its own accord really if you look at the historical timeline of it that it became because i had no other choice to um whereas portugal because of its history in europe and europe was kind of like um already a, like a conglomerate of different many lots of killing a lot of deaths a lot of invasions a lot of wars, <laughs> a lot of wars. <laughs> 
Moors and Christians did not like each other. Um, they had a lot of wars. Um, they ended up kind of breaking off from Spain and becoming their own little niche Portugal. So they had already had that kind of neat cutoff point. And they had, they had because they were once part of what Spain was, and then they cut, 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 cut each other off, they'd already kind of set themselves up, so to speak. They're like, okay, we're going to now adapt and, and mute yeah. ourselves and be more fluid. But then Brazil never had that, really. They didn't mm. have the chance to originally exist as Brazil itself. Um, it kind of became Brazil through a lot of unfortunate, unfortunately very sad and tragic events, which, you know, history history is basically just a timeline of humans being shitty to one another. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, with this, this historical thing, it's indicative of how cultures develop in general. Yeah. You, it's it's uh, there's no culture in existence that hasn't borrowed from another culture. There's, it's, it's yeah. almost impossible. And unless, unless we find human civilization in the Antar- in Antarctica and they haven't had human contact with anyone else for 5,000 years, 6,000 years, maybe that they would be an exception, but every other culture is, you're just borrowing. I mean, great example, you know, your family would be very, your family, um, the way they do, I don't know if you guys do Thanksgiving there. Do you guys do Thanksgiving? We don't, but basically you guys miss out because we basically have Thanksgiving every Sunday because we have Sunday roast. It's right. traditional. Sunday roast, yeah. Sunday roast is basically Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving, but slightly more more conservative every single Sunday. So you, so like, you, you guys way- are like, oh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, we have that every Sunday. What are you talking about? <laughs> you got, yeah, so the way you guys do, your family, you know, celebrates I don't know, something, some big event, let's say Easter, the way your family celebrates Easter would be very different than the way your, if you have an aunt or your uncle, their family celebrates Easter. And then you just have a lineage of just, you, you keep going down where you end up diverting and culture yeah. nations are just bigger versions of this where Absolutely. you start off the same. And then, Oh, you know, I like, I like what Sophie's family's doing. I like the way she's cooking her Sunday, wrote the potatoes. I like it crispier. So I'm going to take that. <laughs> good potatoes so i'm gonna take that i'm gonna <laughs> no no completely agree and that's why i find that the argument for cultural appropriation is really weak it um, is it certainly really is weak. it just it, it, you know there's one thing to pinpoint um disparities and injustices of course that's something to be talked about and that's part part of philosophy is reflecting and analyzing and wanting to change a society through discourse and through argument but also part of the argument is acknowledging when something is valid and when something is invalid and I just don't see the validity really in cultural appropriation. I find it's a really weak, fallacious way of seeing how nation states evolve. And yeah. I mean, even if you don't believe in nation states or don't think they should exist, you can't deny that we live in nation states. So you mm-hmm. can't deny reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 100%. The, the cultural appropriation, I think, is it's most difficult because if we, if we really adhere, I mean, I understand with cultural appropriation where if it's, um, you know, if someone... <laughs> If someone is going around, you know, dressing up as a uh, an Asian guy with like slit eyes, and then he's oh, making yeah. fun of slit eyes, sure. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say okay, you can't dress like that. I would say okay, fine, you're doing it. You're kind of stupid. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. That's 100%. about it. But the 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 one thing that gets me every single time is when someone says, "Oh, you know what? Uh, you can't do, uh, for example, you can't do." You can't cook Indian curry because you're not Indian. I mean, I'm Indian, but uh, you can't cook Indian curry because you're not Indian. It's like, well, what? What are you even talking about? Yeah. How can how can how can someone not cook it just because they're not of that color? I mean, if we're doing that, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is screwed. We're gonna be screwed. We're screwed. Absolutely screwed. <laughs> 
Maybe this is why I don't want it to be a thing. Because then I'm like, you're taking this away from me. <laughs> I mean, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners are screwed, but the history yeah. of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu even more screwed because they're taking from the Jap- Japanese people, right? Yeah, so like, absolutely. The whole sport is considered only Japanese people can do Bra- Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> It's judo, but with more steps. Yeah. <laughs> so going off on that jiu-jitsu thing, um, the one thing I was going to ask you is if, let's say, hypothetically, right, we could resurrect someone of, of, from, a, from, a, from of old, you know, philosopher or scientist, right? who would you consider grappling? That's a very good question. Oh, it's got to be... You want a challenge, don't you? It's got to be Socrates because he was. You know, <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> he was some epic wrestler. You could learn something from him. I think. The, I think he must have a good body lock. Good body <laughs> lock breakdown. He must. He must. I mean, he. You know, the one thing that with Socrates that you don't you don't learn in academic philosophy is how much he seemed to. Have, I mean, uh, how much he placed an emphasis on wrestling as yeah. something that philosophers should do. This is amazing. That's brilliant. And, and well, he was he was actually very much a proponent of general fitness in, in itself and actually looking after your body. You know, he wasn't just some old timey bodybuilder focusing on aesthetics, but, you know, proposing the idea of not of, of living and never knowing what your body is capable of is a very mm. powerful one. Mm. Um, because the body is the transporter of the mind. And if you can't push your body to pass a certain limit, how can you ever push your mind past a certain, certain limit? But yeah, I, I reckon I reckon you might win against Gordon Ryan. I think he would grapple him death questions i think that's part of it, probably why he won he just annoyed his opponents so much but why but why why yeah. are you doing this yeah why do you choose this arm lock don't stop it let me do this <laughs> <laughs> the um do you think i think uh i think if i'm if i'm not mistaken gordon ryan is fighting um in the in his weight class in adcc next year yeah, right, is. which is going to be the first time ever do you think him and Andre Galvao? Andre Galvao, from my knowledge, hasn't fought since like that G- A- A- B- ADC, A- B- ABD, that Russian thing. That yeah, you remember that big Russian wild. thing with lots of money. I don't think he's fought since that. Do you think? What's your thought on Gordon Ryan, Andre Galvao? I think Ryan will win. I think Ryan will win. I know, and it's so annoying. There was, there was not even a second of thought. I right think there. Ryan will win. I think Ryan will win. I think, you know. There was one point I was watching the Craig Jones fight the other day because it was a very good fight. And there was one point when he, Fowler? Uh, Craig Jones, when the Jones fight, where Jones gets his arm, the armbar, and you think, oh, oh God. In the EBI, right. you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, yeah, I was yeah, re-watching yeah. it. I was re-watching it. And I was oh, like, was my, oh, I was like, and then afterwards, when he just gets back up, some of the YouTube comments are amazing. <laughs> it's, like, it's like only someone with like, that side of mindset could just be like, absolutely stony faced after an armbar and just carry on with a fight. I was like, I know. Um, and it made me think that man has a mindset which tells me even Galvao, someone like Galvao, I think I think he will win against him. Mm. What, about if, what if he fought your coach? Which they, oh, you know, which never happened. What if he fought Hodger? Very interesting question. And I hope I hope no one the Academy listens to this. Now I like, think hey, he, Sophie said that uh Gore yeah, might that. beat you, Hodger. <laughs> By the way I think in Guy, Roger would beat Gordon. Because I think, I think Roger is 100%. king of Guy, right? But I don't know. It's a different question in Nogi. It's a different question in Nogi. I'm not sure. Because also, remember, Roger hasn't fought since 2017. He's retired now. 
Yeah, but he came back, what, after five years of not fighting and then destroyed Bushesha? Oh my God, that fight was amazing. Right, so you can't put... Hodger's Hodger's pretty young though, isn't he? He's like 35. Yeah, he's not too old. No, he could could slash another one out. I think think it's, it's difficult for Nogi. I don't, I don't know for Nogi, but I, know, I think in Gi, Hoja would yeah. win because mm. Hoja is just like an artist in the game. Who's, the, who's, your, who's your all-time go-to besides Gordon for watching matches? Ah, oh, that's a really good question. Who do you enjoy? I really like watching... I should probably wrap the ladies a bit. Um, I really like Fion. I think she's great. Oh, yeah. Yes, Fionn is I really great. Like Fionn. She's great. Her um, personality is even more, even more amazing. Like when she's on yeah, podcast, she's just laughing all the time. <laughs> She's so lovely and she's so respectful to her opponents. I, I, I think. Except for I'm when she funny. broke, uh, what's her, the girl's arm, I forget what her name is. I can't her name is too, but I remember that. But to be, but did, they, did, did she tap though? She didn't tap at all though. I don't well, know why she didn't tap, got her arm broken, didn't tap. And then. But that, that, that for me, that's not Fionn's fault. That because that's her, it's her responsibility to tap as an opponent and at that high level. It's your responsibility to know when your body is at its limit. Because mm. also, again, all that adrenaline, I mean, I know it's, it's going to be distilled after years of practice of competing. All that adrenaline, you're not going to be thinking, oh, yes, I've heard something. I should probably stop. You're probably <laughs> just like, oh, I just need to win this. I need to get it. You might think, oh, I haven't quite got it. Maybe I need to change yeah. the angle. So um, I don't think it was her fault. I really like Fionn. I think she's a, she's a great fighter as well. She gives, gives a good show. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? I've been watching. I've been watching Craig Jones recently. I think Craig he's good. Jones? Oh, but to be Keenan. I think Keenan's great you like to watch. Especially the gee. I like Keenan in the gee. But you don't I like, like gee though. I don't like gee, but that doesn't mean I don't like Keenan. <laughs> oh no! And also, I do like gee. Can we again, in case okay, anyone so is listening? This. <laughs> you like gee, but you like no gee more. Yeah, yeah there so we go. Okay. Just, just to clarify position, because I get kicked out of my academy, which was primarily gee academy. <laughs> um, no, Keenan, I think is very. I think he's a great athlete. Mm. Um, ah, what about um, my, the uh, Rotolo brothers? Have you seen? Have you watched them? Oh yeah, those skinny the, guys. They're really good, and the Meow brothers as well. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, nuts. <laughs> nuts. I but I also think kind of remind me of Danaher, like super analytical, super just precise to the T. <laughs> Someone yeah. was like, they're on the spectrum. I'm like, well, yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the other Craig Jones, I, I Craig, I, I really like Craig Jones. He's got a he's very funny, interesting personality. You know, yeah, he's, he's very, he's a very hot. Like he's obviously got that fighter mentality, but he's quite humble, which is quite nice. Like he's got, you know, he jokes around being like, I'm a, I'm a, set, I'm a silver medalist, or that. He takes it in his stride really well, yeah. which is quite nice. And I like how um, him and Gordon are quite banterous and friendly with one another, which is very unusual. Mm. Do you very think? Nikki Rod, I know this is something that I ask pretty much everyone. I was like. Do you think, so when Nicky Rod came on the scene, I told a friend of mine, I said, look, I'll bet you 25 bucks Nicky Rod gets a medal in ADCC. And he's yeah. like, come on, Nicky Rod. He, nobody knew Nicky Rod at that point. He just won the, um, he, get, he got third place in his first, first ADCC trial. Who does, who gets third place in their first ADCC trial six months in? Nobody. So depressing. So nobody. People are like, oh no, it's fine. Like some people just, you know, we all have to work hard at jiu-jitsu. I'm like, no, but there are some people who just get it and it's annoying. <laughs> do you think he would go far, Nikki? Yeah, I think he will. I you think, think so? Oh yeah, I do think so. I think I think he's got the strength which helps, and I think he's got the dexterity. And I think it's gonna be a nightmare for people because he moves so well. It's annoying. It's like a graceful elephant. I'm like, <laughs> like a graceful 
if we well, ever had a great I have, to, I, I have to change my game if I'm going, I mean, I'm going down my weight category and I have to change my game. What, what weight class do you fight in, Sophie? Uh, minus 150 pounds. That's that is um, about, that's about 67 kilos. kilos. About 67 kilos. Because okay. um, it's an awkward one because I'm very tall and gangly. Yeah. Like you get people in my weight category who might be shorter and stockier and I'm like, yeah. God, you're going to have a lot of central mass on me and it's an interesting one because sometimes in in the past i've been at like 74 which has been fine but yeah. my game is just not not as good at that way i find i'm okay. not as fast i find i'm not as nimble and i know there's something to be said for strength but if i'm already lifting and getting muscle in um for me i'm like i'd rather go down and improve that mm. dexterity and speed because i find i'm just better when i'm lighter which is not not me fat shaming anyone. I'm just saying I have a better jiu-jitsu game when I'm lighter. Which is what, fine. Some um, people are the opposite. How long? How far out do you start losing weight? So I'm looking at competing in December, and right now what? I'm. You guys, you guys have competition open? Um, we have them in Dublin and Amsterdam. So I'm going to be very naughty and travel there, which is very naughty. Is it for the ADCC but, opened? No, no. What are you no, going for? No. Grappling. Like grappling grappling industry. Industry. yeah mm. it's a classic uh, grappling industries are hilariously irresponsible so it's always good but i find i've had covid um so i feel like well i'm i will come back and quarantine 14 days to be to, to be compliant with the rules of course but even then i mean the thing is it could be that i register and in december that it's cancelled so we don't know but i'm aiming for like december to compete in uh, grappling industries just to be safe just to get some experience under my mm -hmm. blue belt For sure. um and um I, i'm hovering around my fight weight now which is super lucky okay. so i don't need to do much now i'd have to kind of maintain and then like a couple of weeks before or three weeks or a month before i might just watch my calories might just eat a bit less might watch that get more car get more activity in but I, the, my first fight i did it all wrong and I remember being like, oh, I need to go to the sauna. Oh, I'm so panicky. Oh, I don't know what to do. Oh, what happens if I get disqualified? Because my, my concern was no longer on my jiu-jitsu. It was on making weight because yeah. I was like, oh, I need to make weight. And then I got to the, 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 the scales, super tired, super exhausted, hadn't eaten much, super dehydrated. And I was three kilos under what I could have been. And I was like, you know what? That's not... Like, I, I was weaker as well. I was like, oh, good, fun. So I've learned my lesson now. I'd rather maintain and be like a little bit over on ramen maintenance um over time mm. figure out where i want to be in weight category wise and then make the right decision with time but i did the completely wrong thing i was just like it was a, it was a good lesson for me i was like i'm a stupid idiot and i'm never doing this again <laughs> <laughs> what's the what's what are some of the mistakes or myths around weight um uh, what do you call that? cutting weight that's a really good question um because I think nutrition doesn't get enough um, of a spotlight necessarily in the jiu-jitsu industry or jiu-jitsu kind of sport. Because and in general, any kind of uh, sport, sport that requires you to cut weight mm -hmm. because it's very much like just dehydrate, bro. Just do this, bro. And it's very much like bro tips. And they bro kind of work. But they're not bro science. They kind of, bro yeah, science. Literally. Well, you know what? Ultimately, when you get on the scale, it's not... It's not measuring your composition. It's not measuring your mass, your muscle mass. It's not measuring your fat. They just want to see you're going to be like at a certain weight to fight, like literally the number on the scale. So yes, you can dehydrate yourself, and you you could potentially be at that number, right? Um, doesn't mean you've altered your your fat levels or altered your muscle mass levels. You've just manipulated water in order for your body to be lighter on the day, and that's valid. Whether or not it's effective is depends, I think, on your tournament. So it depends on when you weigh in. 
So some tournaments weigh in, well, the one I did weighed in like literally just before you fought. So you couldn't, it was hard. So I did the wrong decision because if I could weigh in the night before or literally hours before, fine, I can dehydrate, rehydrate, I can eat more, fine, and I'll be good to go. But if it's five minutes before, and you can see that on the rule page, they mention that, it's literally before you fight, that's when you have to be slower and more considerate about your weight cut. So it might be that a couple of months before you plan a sensible calorie deficit, um, you see where you are in terms of weight categories, you plan a training routine beyond your uh, jiu-jitsu to supplement the weight loss. So then you're not in a deficit purely in terms of, oh, I need to eat less. It's like, oh, I'm more active, so I'm going to be expending more energy, which means I can make a modest calorie deficit. Okay. I don't have to kill myself over this. Mm. So uh, same with clients. If I get them to be in a modest calorie deficit, but get them to be more active, they okay. end up losing weight, but still eat foods they enjoy and they're not bloody miserable, which is always good. So um, wait, 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 wait. So moderate calorie deficit would be just eating less, but <clears throat> but more nutritious or just... Like how oh, does that's it a good question. So with weight loss, a lot of people assume that, you know, eat clean and eat healthy foods. I don't um, understand what eat clean means, to be completely yeah, honest. Eat clean doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's scientifically completely inaccurate. Your body can't tell if you've had... Your body assimilates food in micronutrients and macronutrients. And obviously, in terms of micronutrients, you've got your vitamins, your minerals, all the veggies and green stuff that make you healthy and happy and energized. So in terms of health, we want them because we want to be happy, good people. Mm -hmm. In terms of weight loss, you could eat one McDonald's meal a day and you'd lose weight because you're not eating anything at all. Mm. So in terms of actual expenditure of energy and the physiological process of fat and weight loss, the main thing is to be in a calorie deficit. So on some level, your diet has to be restrictive, right? It's kind of like the free will argument that Daniel Dennett makes when you go into an ice cream shop and it's like, right, you can't walk out of this ice cream shop to pick anything else. But in this shop, you can pick all the flavors you want. So you're kind of restrained in your choice of things. Mm -hmm. um, I can't really use a free will analogy for diet, but there we go. Um, and in terms of weight loss, it's like, right, you have this set number of calories and then you're going to lose weight. You'll get smaller. Now, you can't go beyond that number or you'll maintain weight or you'll gain weight, or you won't reach your goal. But mm. in this number, you can choose to construct your diet how you so choose. So oh, it could be like, okay. you have like, if you're like, okay, over this week, I have a set number of calories to yeah. play around with, fine. Which means one day I know I've got a dinner party, so I might enjoy myself that night, and I'll have this, some, some, some calories, X number of calories here. And then on the other day, I might no be conservative. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's kind of like a bank, bank balance seeing where you're at and being able to save and spend appropriately according mm -hmm. to your means mm -hmm. and your needs. And so I find with weight cutting, if you do want to cut weight, be organized and look in advance at the tournaments and at the rules. Mm. Um, and also if you find, oh God, it's too late, just I would go up a weight category to one that it will start if it's not the one you want. But I found, I keep looking back thinking I would have performed so much better if I'd gone up a weight category, I would have been lighter but I also would have been happier. And because, because it also for me, with anything in life, I think in terms of, because I have a bit of a slant towards deontology. So I'm always mm -hmm. thinking, right, my actions need to have consequences. So if I would have gone to that competition thinking, right, I'm going to go up a weight category. It's going to suck. I'm probably going to lose because they're going to be stronger and they're going to be the same level of me. Fine. But that would have taught me, right, next time, you know, your weight cut needs to be more organized. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've learned something from my consequences, which I did originally from the fight anyway, because I performed terribly and I wasn't up to scratch. So I was like, okay, I've learned from that. I'm not going to do that again because that had a massive impact on my jiu-jitsu and I've yeah. learned from it. So in a sense, it's, it, it's quite good.
quite good to be like to to be accountable for yourself and say right well we haven't done the best approach possible for this weight cut so we need to make sure as a result we follow through with the initial actions of right okay either performing and feeling and feeling really bad or acknowledging you're not at the weight you are which is accepting reality which is a much mm. healthier proposal rather than being in denial and going up a weight category and learning from that and being like right cool good next time i'm going to be much more organized in my approach and think about the responsibilities i need to take months before necessarily or weeks before the competition and and embark upon that mm. and i think in a weird way being accountable like that to yourself in any kind of situation in life um it, it applies but weight cuts especially or especially weight cuts as well um it means you're going to be much more mindful of what your actions entail and what that end result will be and if you don't like the end result you're thinking well i don't like the end result which means i have to change my actions somehow mm. because i need that to change that makes much more sense the I've, I've only cut weight once and that was my first tournament and that was a terrible weight cut I was trying to make 155. You have to. Right? You have to there's got to be one shitty one, oh, otherwise it's going to be. The, okay, so this is the mistake I made, and I, I don't know if it's. I don't. I don't even know if it's if it's a mistake. So what I did was, hours before, the tournament, I was looking at when I was supposed to appear. It was like two o'clock. Was right. the uh, when I was supposed to show up. So I was still at home at like eight, and I'm looking at my weight, and I'm like, man, if I put the gear on, I'm like three, two, two pounds over. No. So what am I going to do? I'm going to, I didn't eat breakfast and then I was like, I have to lose weight. So then I started doing some, you know, started sweating and, and then I, I had seen, this was my, so I had seen UFC, you know how UFC embedded, the US, UFC embedded videos, they, they put it out every time there's a UFC happening to hype it up. Yeah. I saw one where, I forget who it was, but she was taking a, a, a bath in hot water. <laughs> So I was like, okay, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. I turned on the, hot, the bath, put a hot water, and I just laid in the hot water for, I don't know, I don't know how long I was in there, 45 an hour. Got out. I was on weight. Got to the tournament. Had to weigh in uh, an hour or two before. Weighed in. So I was supposed to fight at 155. I put on the gi. I weighed in. I was 149. So I, either my weighing scale was completely off, which I think my weighing scale was completely off, or I... Oh, and also it was a terrible, terrible tournament. I was just oh. so exhausted. I was, I went to get the grip. Yeah, the grips, you can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the are just like pathetic. Yeah. Just, yeah, you're like, this isn't normally like this, but I can't even hold on to your key. <laughs> just oh, slipping so away. So just bad. like that medal. <laughs> What's the, what are your thoughts on, so, uh, you know, you, I, I listened to the podcast that you do with your friend. Uh, oh, Lauren. Fit, yeah, witness the fitness. With, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, uh, I think in the first episode, you guys are talking about how there's a lot of myths around, you know, fitness, the fitness industry in general. <clears throat> and something that I wanted to ask you is, what were your thoughts on the fitness gurus that are prevalent on Instagram? You know, they're, they're, I'm question. sure there are some good ones, but generally, what are your thoughts on them? You know, it's such an interesting one. And one camp, I think, I, I, I go into that kind of hyper-protective coach mode and be like, they're dangerous, they're telling people the wrong things. But mm. also, other side of me thinks, well, they might not be trawling through research papers all day. They might be running a business, which is understandable. Yeah. They might be doing the best they can with the best tools they have at the time, which is also completely understandable. And I know I have said some horrific shit as a coach in the past, being like, and I cringe, being like, oh, I was really wrong. Not in an evil way, but because I just didn't know any better. <laughs> I hadn't done, I hadn't learned it. And still to this day, there are things that I'm really shaky on that I really want to focus and learn on. And that's something I 
have to put continual improvement on if I want to get better with my knowledge base. So I always have that understanding there because I'm thinking if you are a genuine and sincere coach, I understand you're not going to be in the place always that you're going to be in, your, in, in each stage of life. You're going to be improving, you're going to be changing your opinion, you're going to be tweaking your knowledge, which is important. However, some of these gurus have up to like a million followers. I mean, mm-hmm. there was one there was one who has a million followers. This one actually we talked about was the one that said that, um, you know, high-waisted gym leggings weaken your core because it just makes your core, yeah, it's, it's not true to clarify. If your core was weak, you probably wouldn't, or if your core stopped working, you wouldn't be able to walk and you probably wouldn't be able to breathe. So there we go. There's just two, 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 two kind of maxims there to just completely negate how that works. Your, your core is basically always, I mean, it is not even basically, it's always in use regardless mm-hmm. of what leggings you use. And there's no impact there. And also you could, if you wanted to completely outlogic that argument as well, you could say, well, um, if, if those leggings make you so core so weak, then why not do power lifters wear belts when they lift something mm-hmm. incredibly heavy? Um, so, you know, you go into so many, so many different kind of uh, pit holes with that. Now, the problem is a young, impressionable young trainer or coach who comes onto the scene who wants to learn is going to use Instagram as a way to find resources because it's pretty, there's lots of images, there's lots of hashtags, and it's a perfectly innocuous way of trying to expand your knowledge base, particularly if Instagram is also a source of advertising and business. Mm. It's like, cool, two in one, amazing. Which means they're getting exposed to this, uh, these ideas. And these ideas are proposed to be evidence-based or science-based when they're really not. Or they look at maybe one paper or two paper and they extrapolate or cherry pick a meaning that's not what the paper was saying, or the paper's sample size was very specific and restricted in that it doesn't properly reflect a general population response to movement or exercise itself or the physiology of physiological reactions of exercise. So I, I'm on one hand frustrated, and on the other hand, I understand because they've got to make money. So the only thing I can do, I can't control those gurus out there. Us trainers can't control those gurus out there. We can't control their actions of selling, of selling lies. And we also, to be honest, to a certain extent, we can't control how aware or right we are. Mm-hmm. I have many blind spots that I continue like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, actually, that might not be so right. Let me toy with that idea. And I have to continually check myself before I wreck myself, as the kids say. Um, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I'll get stuck, stuck into a, a cycle where I'm not being the best, the best coach I can be at a certain time because mm. we're always going to be changing and improving, hopefully. Um, and I feel like as trainers who do want to continually improve, I think we have a responsibility to invest in education, mm-hmm. um, especially if we're self-employed. I think a certain percentage of your income should go to continually ed- being educated with people who promote the idea of critical thinking and having no heroes in the industry because i think that's a really good way of getting past kind of fitness fitness common senses which in the at the end of the day often aren't actually common senses they're not even senses at all they're just lies and being able to discern good and bad research and also being able to dedicate the time and commitment to learning about biomechanics or learning about biology or physiology and carving out that time because that's our job i think we if we want to take if we want people to take our job seriously we have to take our jobs seriously <laughs> ourselves we can't just think we're we're just there on the ground we have to be doing the work outside in order to provide a better service for our clients and ultimately provide a better service for ourselves so we know that we're serving and helping the community it's taking ownership 
of absolutely because we can't control what's being put on instagram we can't control what's being put out there we can only control what we do and how we improve ourselves as coaches and ultimately how we want to address those myths do we want to call them out and be really rude about it and be a dick when we were probably that person five years ago or do we want to maybe think okay they're putting that content out there is there a way i can put other content out there that might introduce people to other ideas and get that person thinking differently and lead them to a path of critical thinking rather than um simply kind of taking for granted what's on the screen and taking it that it's the correct thing but uh, but are there uh, or do you suspect that there are some fitness coaches that purposely misconstrue yes oh yeah 100% so? and those, that's more nefarious i think that's a that's a, that is a problem in the industry it's um you know, if a lot of people want to sell things, their guns are expensive. They're going to get a lot of money out of that. Foam rollers get a lot wait of money. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, slow down. Slow down. What are you saying about Theragun? Oh, well, that you don't need a Theragun, and Theraguns are basically a waste of money. What? Yeah, Theraguns are basically a waste of money. Okay, Sophie, please educate me. Excellent. I'm just going to charge, edit this out. I'm going to charge my laptop because I can see the battery going down. It's fine. It's fine. Um, I see um, guitar back there. I know. I'm. I'm just. I'm trying to learn it, but okay. I'm. I'm. I'm still a beginner. As but so I'm on the journey of suckdom now, as I am in jujitsu. So it's a good feeling. Good feeling to suck. It means you're learning something. Okay. So a lot of people prescribe things like foam rollers and theraguns yes. to reduce injury, or to get better, or to improve your posture, or to 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 be less tight. Now. There's a problem in, in of itself with this because it's implying that we can get rid of injury or get rid of um, soreness by applying that kind of level of neurological tension. Because if you think about it, your skin is covered with nerves, right? Mm -hmm. So people assume that by foam rolling or applying a Theragun to your deep tissue, um, it's going to suddenly cure you, cure you of all these maladies. I can, I can answer your skepticism through this. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I used to think foam rolling worked. Okay, I used to believe in like fascial lines. I still like, think it works. That's why I, I'm. I, uh, so this is all new to me. Now, so this is a really, really cool, interesting concept because it can work, but not for the reasons you think it is, right? So a lot of people think when you foam roll, it's going to get rid of soreness or get rid of lactic acid or, you know, get deep into the tissue and, yeah. um, Kind of like manual therapy, right? Where it's getting rid of that soreness or uh, pain or getting rid of that injury or ligament tear or whatever whatever the reasoning might be for, from that certain coach. Now, when we look at the concept of pain, pain, I mean, there are many people who explain this better than me, but I'm going to try my best to explain it in ways that are layman's terms and that are kind of like, um, uh, you know, easily, easily digestible. But pain is essentially a feeling in, that happens in the brain. Now, when we look at people who've had um, basically like their limbs chopped off, right, mm -hmm. and they have and and they have no more arm or no more leg, there is still a condition whereby they can feel as yeah, if their arm is there, and they yeah. can feel pain where the trauma affected their arm. Mm -hmm. Now, would you say they have an injury in their arm if they've got no arm? No, mm -hmm. you wouldn't say. But there's no there's no injury there, but their brain is still registering that pain going from here, signaling back up to the brain. So we already have this issue with pain, right? If pain is a feeling, does it always necessitate that there is a biomechanical or biological um, impact problem there? Some cases, yes, but the, the, the solution for that isn't 
shoving basically a giant vibrator in your muscle. Um, basically, what you basically need to do with injury is rest and deload for a certain amount of time. CBD then, oil. CBD yeah, oil. Oh, of course, the classic jiu-jitsu move, CBD oil, which I didn't realize was part of the cult. I mean, I love jiu-jitsu. Like, it's, it's literally one of my biggest loves in life. And like, it's the, the only thing I'll be codependent to in my life is jiu-jitsu, which is problematic in of itself it's like no i need someone who will accept that i will probably train double days double times a day when competition is coming up sorry <laughs> um but it, and i found that even though it's bloody brilliant it does have a cult-like atmosphere and cbd oil is one of those things cbd oil and theraguns so you know shoving a giant vibrator onto a muscle is not going to cure that impact or trauma furthermore we can't actually reduce risk of injury by doing it because injury can happen literally i could walk down the stairs and i could suddenly trip up because my foot lands differently <laughs> nothing to do with how my musculoskeletal structure is it's just having a bit of a bad day and then i'm like oh ow actually i've got like a ligament tear or i could sleep really funny nothing to do with lifting or training or how my back or posture is and suddenly i can't move my neck from side to side which happens just sleep with funny yeah. and your body is a bit like oh actually don't just not happy today we can't predict injury there's too many variables that go into this now with pain and injury in general we have our nervous system that interprets things that goes on in the environment that interprets every little thing that goes on so right now my nervous system is feeling very good and chilled because we're having a great conversation but if i'm going to the gym and i hate training and i feel really insecure about my body and i feel really shit and a trainer in the past told me that my squat was really bad and that i shouldn't squat my knees forward because it's going to cause me pain and i've got coach sophie coming in like right we're gonna do squats <gasps> my whole nervous system my brain that part of my brain the amygdala the little fire alarm system that we've got going on there is going to go like eh -eh, eh -eh, eh -eh. all of these things that have happened to us in the past is going to potentially cause us a problem now and now my brain is going to send signals being like right we need to protect you from injury so we're going to send a signal saying that oh but my knee my old knee it's going to be it's niggling so the pain signal that we have is often very effective. We kind of want it, right? If you didn't have that protective signaling from the brain, you could have your hand in a vat of hot boiling water and you'd be like, I can't feel anything. And then you burn your entire hand to shreds. So we need it. It's a good thing. I'd be more worried if people or clients didn't have it. Now, what that does mean is that pain is just an information signal for us as a coach and as for pe as general, general people. So a good example for this in jiu-jitsu is if I... I, I always have like a niggly side of my ribs. Good old side. This is the first time I've heard that word niggly. Niggly. It's a very niggly rib. Um, what does that mean? I, niggly niggling means what? is like, oh, it's annoying. Wiggly? It's oh, annoying. Okay. Niggly. Niggly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and sometimes it flares up in sessions, not because the person's putting a lot of pressure on, but if I'm insecure and I'm like, oh, I hope my rib's going to be okay, that's automatically a thought, which is mm -hmm. going to trigger actually a biological response to signal to that, to, that, to that area to kind of create this feeling so I don't get injured again because it doesn't want to get injured again. It wants to keep you safe. It's very similar actually to how we look at anxiety, how sometimes a thought or a chain of negative automatic thoughts will actually induce a biological and physiological reaction. You get the slightly shallow breaths, you get the tight chest because your brain or your body is ready to go into that fight or flight and react accordingly to whatever threat is being perceived. Now, that's not to say sometimes you don't get an injury, like a physical injury, but there is no evidence, there's no peer-reviewed evidence to suggest that a Theragun or a foam roller helps your injury or helps get it better, which is really annoying and sucky. The only thing that helps it is rest. Yeah. And, you know, I, to an extent, good nutrition, I think, 
because you can you know if you're thinking about like the, the the really nitty-gritty of nutrition you're looking about amino acids and building blocks and also satellite cells which mm-hmm. do come from the breakdown of muscle fibers which then get recovered by good amounts of protein and yes you could make an argument that nutrition can help with with your with your with your recovery but the thing that helps with injury the most is just rest in general decent nutrition and also managing that nervous system response because that pain will crop up every time you experience that kind of i hate to use the word trigger but it's appropriate that Mm. trigger um and the thing is with manual therapy it's not that it's 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 it doesn't have its uses because as i said we've got lots of neurons on the skin and this is one of the reasons you might think that foam rolling works now imagine if you just get a nice ball over all those millions of little cells Mm -hmm. and because those are the signals are going to the brain you're going to feel like oh this feels quite nice and also what's going on in your brain is like oh thank god i'm doing something about this injury oh you know what i feel better because i feel like i'm more in control oh cool like i know i'm doing something and i'm just not just waiting for it to passively get better or to just not do anything so you've already relaxed your nervous system by taking control of the situation by mm. doing something it's not that the foam roll or the theragun has magical powers to get into your tissue and suddenly get more satellite cells to repair the injury or the impact it's that there are other factors contributing to you feeling better and therefore you feel, oh, the foam roller worked. But it's because that component made mm-hmm. you feel better, if that makes sense. The components yeah. that led up to the foam roller helped you feel better. So, it's so a, one's attitude plays a almost, role. It's almost, it's almost like a weird law of attraction-y kind of mm-hmm. vibe. It's, it's how the nervous <laughs> system and how the brain and how um, interprets the situation that goes on. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like if someone comes in to a session and they say, oh, my, my posture's really bad, and my back's always really weak. Mm-hmm. And they've always been like this, they've always kind of been like, just hunched over. Could be that they've had a really stressful day. Mm-hmm. Could be that they're just a bit sad. And you're like, oh, just when you deadlift, can you stand up for me? And suddenly they go from, I've got a really bad back, to standing really tall. And that's all you've done. You've just changed someone's position by giving them a cue. It's mm-hmm. a bit like, what, you know, when you are foam running or getting a Theragun in, that's kind of the cue. You're just changing the dynamic you're just being like oh i'm doing something about this i feel like i'm i'm getting into the injury and getting into that knot or whatever that is so so are you saying that it's it doesn't it's not helpful at all besides the fact that there's a you you, you've taken the action and the action is probably what causes the most and and again because if we think about how the nerves and the the skin work and it's like it's it's a neurological response it's a bit like when you get a massage it feels feels great because you've got human contact, you've got someone taking care of you, you've got that kind of social it would element. Be I know different this if it was crazy. a robot. Yeah, it might be. So? It might be. But even then, if you went and got something done by AI, uh-huh. you're spending money on something which you know has got so many much machinery circuitry to understand the human body. So you're like, this thing knows what it's doing. It's mm-hmm. been literally programmed to make me feel better. So you could even argue, even if you don't have that same human connection with the robot you could even make the argument that the ai robot is probably more competent at its job so you Mm. feel even more secure in that situation and you feel like again you are doing something about the situation you're feeling like i'm feeling quite tense i'm feeling quite stiff and stressed i'm going to go get a massage automatically that one motion of action can help now that's not to say that i think things like manual therapy or foam rolling or theraguns don't necessarily have a place i think they do i just don't think they have a place in injury prevention or injury um oh, injury curing okay, okay. i feel like they have a role and i have clients who do like a good massage and a foam roll mm-hmm. and what i tell them is i just don't want you spending money on things that make you think will help cure an injury if you want to get them because they make you feel good and you are aware that 
it's not going to be the miracle cure for you to move better or do anything like that, that's fine. But I have to tell people like, it's not going to help you move better. Mm-hmm. Movement will. It's not going to help you get rid of an injury. Rest will. Mm-hmm. But if you like it and it's part of your routine and you feel better for it, yeah. go for it. Because again, there is an element there of, um, or, or something that isn't necessarily tangible or biomedical. And of course you do have the biomedical aspect of you literally touching and caressing your skin, which just feels nice for the human brain to, to understand. Mm. So of course it's going to feel better. It's going to feel more relaxed and more taken care of, which in turn will reduce your pain because you're relaxing the nervous system. You're getting it into a place where it feels safe. You know, there are times where if an anxiety attack flares up in a client Mm -hmm. they're going to feel stiffness in their knees they're going to get in flared joints there are physical and physiological ramifications to anxiety Mm. so and there's a really interesting paper i can send you on anxiety and pain Mm -hmm. and actually using they used cbt methods a cognitive behavioral therapy not cbd oh yeah see maybe both maybe (laughs) both maybe let's see we don't have a control group for that so we can have a good go go with that and they used it with patients who had arthritis. Okay. Um, and there was um, a control group of, uh, of patients who had manual therapy. Uh-huh. Obviously, the manual therapist. And they had a group of patients who... Uh, they had a control group who just kind of had nothing. And they had a group of patients who were um, seeing a physio, but no manual therapy. And they were doing things like active movement and CBT therapy for the brain. Yeah. And that group was the one who, at the end of the eight weeks, was reported to have lower levels of pain, anecdotally. So we can see here that there's a lot of things that go that's going on that actually long term will have much better effects on on movement and confidence and exercise and also pain management. Mm-hmm. So it could be things more like uh, more like uh, like more autonomy and in your movement, more confidence in your body, um, challenging narratives in your brain that tells you uh, pain is bad or dangerous or that mm-hmm. I'm always in pain or that. I have really bad knees or this, I move really badly, challenging those narratives Mm -hmm. and getting you into a better, calmer state of exercise, getting your nervous system and brain to feel more present with your body and not actually fixating on the pain the whole time. Mm -hmm. So some really interesting studies going out there. Pain is, pain is subjective though. The the way you feel pain is very different from the way I feel pain, right? Which is also one of the reasons why foam roll and Theragun is probably just, it's going to be, um, not necessarily the most useful to, uh, useful term because also if your processing pain, if your way of processing pain is different to mine, mm-hmm. then why should everyone get a Theragun? Because let's mm-hmm. say, for instance, I had a traumatic experience with a foam roller. I yeah. slipped up on it and I flew backwards like a banana skin and I broke my spine. Yeah. I'm going to look at a foam roller and think, I never want to see one of you again. So a foam roller could be the exact opposite of what I need because, again, my brain is looking at the foam roller through a lens of threat and through that lens of threat, the nervous system starts to react in a certain mm. way that preps the body for certain to, to counter said threat. So it's it's very interesting. Pain science is really interesting. It's very interesting. So, okay, so there's this mat that I've seen on Instagram. I, I I've been trying to remember as you're talking. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe it starts with an M. But it's this mat that's supposed to do deep tissue massage, where it's got all these. Um, it looks like it looks like a rose petal. Uh, it looks like a lotus, a lotus flower. But instead, it's it's very very sharp, and it's got. Oh, oh I know those that they. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, again, if you want to lie on it because you want to just relax, and it's but, your way. Okay, the, the, but does it work though? Because all you're doing is you're lying on yeah. it. But they 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 market it as deep tissue right. massage. They feel their back. It's like super red and no. infl- inflamed. Things like cupping as well. Again, different. If you're if you're paying money to do it and part of your routine and to unwind, 
it's not a problem but it doesn't cure injury it doesn't get into like the deep fascial lines that mm -hmm. help you move better it doesn't cure your posture those are money-making claims okay. there is no evidence behind them but that's not to say that's not to say if you don't if you enjoy doing it keep doing it yeah. but just know that it's it's not going to be for what you think it is if that makes sense yeah yeah so the the best from my understanding the best Prevention for injury, prevention is, um, at least in my experiences, I should say this is in my experience, is the stronger that I've gotten, the less injured I, I've, I've become in jiu-jitsu. And partially that's probably because I'm able to resist more. And so that's a really interesting concept, right? Um, when we're looking at, so injury prevention is such an interesting term because you can't really prevent injury because of this, as I mentioned, because of the variables. However, yeah. we can indirectly try and help it. So a great example is an arm bar, yeah. right? you're getting your arm in it's basically you're basically trying to it's almost like a shoulder break as you know because you've got the leverage here you're pressing here yeah. pressing against here and you're putting pressure with the shoulder there until it goes like that because yeah. you've got the shoulder locked in there as well so what you'll want to be trying to do is improving your end range actually mm. where the shoulder's going mm -hmm. because then what's going to happen is we're going back to that nervous system there when you're a white belt and someone gets you into an arm bar for the first time you're basically bricking it you're like mm -hmm. what the hell is going on your arm tenses up they haven't even put it on and you tap because you feel like I'm going to break my arm. It's because it's a completely new, new range of movement, a new, a new position. It's, it's understandable. Your body's going to freeze, go into that fight or flight response, um, which the nervous system understands because it's looking at this brand new threat and it's like, what the hell's going on? And of course, um, you're not going to feel as competent or strong in that range because it's just new. Now, let's say we do some exercises to get you strong in end range here, all the way here. Next time you go into an armbar, because you've done this movement so many times, skill acquisition, muscle memory, in a sense, muscle memory, I use, I use air quotes for that just because it's easier to explain. From here, the body is going to feel less inclined to tap out or to freak out or to, or to, to get breakages just because it's been this position for so long and we've loaded it. So now we've got more confidence in a certain range, which means we're more skilled in the movement. And when we're more skilled in the movement, we're more relaxed in it and mm. we're less likely to potentially have a ligament tear right by by loading it to the point where there's going to be a tear or something like that um again it's hard to control this variable it's hard to, it's very difficult to do but you can at least mitigate some kind of risk and strength is a skill i mean strength can be defined in so many terms so we're being kind of general here but let's say you want to get stronger by lifting heavier weights mm -hmm. and we're taking jiu-jitsu out of it that that's a skill you practice it over time you lift heavier you increase your range your, your reps um you might adjust your tempo to have a constant weight and just get stronger over time anyway let's say you do get stronger that is a skill in itself and jiu-jitsu as we know requires you to work against resistance and force so even though we're not practicing jiu-jitsu we might be lifting more weights so we're not getting the we're not necessarily getting skillful in jiu-jitsu because we're not practicing the same toriando passes we're not practicing the same um omoplata moves we're not getting skillful in the movement sets itself but we might be getting skillful against the notion of working against resistance which is what is involved in jiu-jitsu mm. so by getting more skillful at working against resistance when it comes to weird positions and getting pretzeled, our bodies feel more relaxed because it's like, okay, I feel stronger here. There's a, there's a force against me because I've been lifting. I'm used to having something pressing against me so I can at least act in a way that's calmer so your nervous system feels a bit calmer. And as a result, you're less likely to get into a situation where you might be injured. Is the, for, for someone who's doing, who wants to do just, let's say strength, strength, not, not even strength, let's say someone who wants to eliminate as much, as many um, variables 
as possible in terms of getting injured. You know, so okay. let's say someone's very prone to, obviously I know you can't give specific advice. Yeah, of course. But let's say someone's very prone to ankle injuries or right. knee injuries. Yeah. Would the best case scenario for them is to work around those muscles in general? Is that is that the general advice you would go? So I would actually, it sounds really weird. If you're frightened of getting kind of um, injured in ankles and knee stuff, I think getting a base base level of strength with compound lifts is going to help. I think it's going to be mm. some transference there. For sure, mm. it's going to be carryover into your sport. And I would practice on your own doing solo drills of doing the movements where you're feeling weakest in. So mm. it could be that really kind of fast lateral movement because there's so much weird movement with the knees in jiu-jitsu. You're, going, you're using your ACL to go from here to here to here and you're using a lot of the feet and the hips. So your feet often have to go inwards and outwards crazy in crazy positions especially when you're trying to pass like a de la heva or something like that and you're trying to put weight on the opponent opponent's hip or you're trying to you're trying to move the foot away and you're trying to put loads of weight on one foot and then going to changing directions super quickly especially when they're trying to do a tripod sweep so you want to be working on feet and hip placement so you can go do all kinds of weird and wacky solo drills which make you look a bit like an idiot but if you do them on your own solo what we're doing, we're doing sequencing here and we're getting your brain to be used to that movement. So when you're going into sparring, when we've combined that with lifting and getting stronger, not only can now you resist against the force, but you now have the sequencing skills and patterns of being in that weird ass position and moving really quickly. So we're going from mm. like acceleration and making sure that, that, um, that your, your body feels comfortable. And when your body feels comfortable, it's less likely to potentially kind of freak out, not very scientific, but less likely to freak out. And you're more likely to adapt to different changes of movement and speed in an instant. And so you want to be getting stronger and you want to be practicing those weird, the sequence of movements that you feel least comfortable with mm. on your own. So when it comes to coming onto the mat, you're just used to it more. You're, you're not feeling as tight or nervous or stressed about the situation. So you're not elucidating a physiological response that could tamper with your movement and make you react, react a bit less to potential threats of injury. Um, and it's going to make you um, feel more confident in your sparring as well. Because the last thing you want is to be constantly in the back of your head thinking, I'm going to get injured, I'm going to get injured, I'm going to get injured. Which, which would most likely lead you to getting yeah, injured. Yeah, it's like, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Sophie, this has been a great conversation, but before we before we end this off um where can people find you on social oh uh, cool so best way to find me is on my instagram yeah. so that's at sophie t so that's spelled s-o-f-i-t-double -E, e and then you can find me on my website as well which is thecosmicmovement.com which is obviously apt to my whole philosophy philosophy uh philosophy and um i also am running a monthly book online book club um right. so if anyone would like to join just contact me on instagram and i can send you the link because we do mm -hmm. we're trying to incorporate classics and philosophy and psychology in a really approachable way so hopefully we can give you guys life-changing texts to carry out with you um and hopefully um lead better lives more fulfilling lives is the uh are you only open to having clients from the uk no i'm open to have clients i have clients okay. i have a couple of clients in denmark and i've got a client in the states so Ooh, okay yeah no, she's open i'm open, open to, <laughs> to everyone from everywhere okay um yeah sophie thank you so much for this conversation this was fantastic uh, i really appreciate it thank you so much thank you